Welcome to Worldwide Bible Class. I'm Pastor Wolf Mueller, Life of Jacob with Martin Luther. Let's pray. Lord, give us your spirit so that your word would bear fruit in our convictions and our conversations through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. We are looking at Genesis 28, which is, if you will remember, I got to do something special here. I got to pin myself. And I think that works. Let's put this over here. Let's annotate. Okay, so we are looking at the text here. Whoops, that's what I was looking at Wednesday. What now? We're looking at the text over here where it says that uh, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and says, you will not take a wife from the daughters of Cana. Go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now, we'll remember in the plot that, um, that Rebekah came to Isaac, and instead of saying, Esau is going to kill Jacob, she said, Jacob needs to not marry Canaanite woman like Esau. And so the result is that Isaac is going to send Jacob away. And Luther takes this occasion to say, you know, what we're really talking about in this text is marriage and, uh, and what it means to be, to be married. And especially in Luther's day, and especially in our day, there are big problems with the doctrine of marriage. People were despising marriage. In Luther's day, they understood that if you want to be really holy, you had to be not married. That was part of the monastic vow, is that you became, uh, that you committed to chastity for the sake of holiness. And if you did decide to be married, you couldn't be part of the estate of the church. You couldn't be a, a priest or a monk or whatever. So they had this false idea about marriage, despising of marriage. It's not too different than today. In fact, the, the people are getting married later and later, and we have the whole conversation about what marriage even is. It's crazy. So Luther is encouraging us towards marriage. <laughs> now, I, I really think this is great. Take heart and bear in mind that this life is nothing else than misery itself. <laughs> I think I would, if you just wanted to, you know, have a Luther quote, you could just quote this part right here. Bear in mind that this life is nothing else than misery itself. You know, <laughs> that's not real. It's not real cheery, right? But here, here's the here's the thing that we and and I think this might be important for us to consider is that what are our expectations in life? I mean, what what are we expecting from life? That life is just going to be fantastic and great all the time, and and then. And then when something bad happens, we're like, wait a minute, something bad happened? Nothing bad was ever supposed to happen to anybody ever. Well, no, that's not, that's not what we're promised. That's not what we're taught by the scriptures. The scriptures give us quite a different story. Uh, that, that we are not supposed to, to think that there's not going to be misery in this life. How much, how, how much of the problem do we have nowadays with things like euthanasia? Because people think, oh boy, my life is miserable. And if, if my life is miserable, then that means what? That means it shouldn't even, I shouldn't even have a life at all. No. 
this is just what things are tough. But if you have, if you, if you expect this, then you can start to overcome the troubles, toils, and difficulties of misery. If you look to God, your creator and father, whose will and ordinance you should submit yourself in humility and patience by concluding as follows. I believe in God. He has created me, a man, and I shall thank him that I have his word and that it has pleased him for me to be a husband, to be a wife, in order that I may bring up offspring and govern the household, and that through the gospel I have the promise of eternal life and consolation in this present life. Look at what the gospel gives. Number one, that through the gospel I have one, the promise of eternal life, and two, comfort in the present life. It's quite beautiful. Quite beautiful. So uh, uh, this key, this is a key thing here. God has created me. This is going to come up in a little bit uh, in the next section where, uh, well, let's right here in this prayer that Luther teaches us. So let's get there. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, godliness is a value in every way. It holds the promise for the present life and for the life to come. So that we have a double benefit in life. This life, the Lord blesses us. In the next life, the Lord blesses us. Romans 15, 4, whatever was written was written for our instruction that by steadfastness, encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. Some of you might recognize, you might say, hey, that sounds an awful lot like the prayer, the colic that we pray for the scriptures. And you would be right. It's based on that text, Romans 15, 4, the epistle reading for the second Sunday in Advent. The scriptures are written to give us hope. In fact, you want to know something cool? Yeah, uh, I wonder how far away. All right, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's worth it. The, um, when the Lutheran, Luther died, okay, here, uh, how fast can I do this? Luther died. There's all sorts of problems in the church. There's all sorts of fighting and false doctrine. So they're trying to figure out how to sort it out. So they got together and they wrote the formula of Concord, which is nice. And it deals with all the controversy, original sin, righteousness, long gospel, all this sort of stuff. Beautiful. 1577, they published it. But one of the articles they took up was the doctrine of election, not because there was any Lutherans arguing about election, but because they could see it coming. The Calvinists had their, their doctrine of double predestination. And the, these guys had the foresight to realize that this was going to come and cause trouble. And so they, they wrote a sort of preemptive article about the dangers of the Calvinistic view of election. And they quoted two scriptures. I mean, they quoted a ton of scriptures, but they, they, they said, here's the basic idea. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is written for our instruction. And Romans 15.4 says scripture is written for our hope. And so if you have a doctrine that destroys instruction and says, live however you want, or if you have a doctrine that says, destroys hope, if you're not elect, if you're not one of the elect, you can't be saved, then you have a false doctrine. In other words, those two texts, 2 Timothy 3.16 and Romans 15.4 become the sort of the um, uh, uprights through which every doctrine has to travel. And if you don't, if you, if you miss comfort or you miss instruction, then you're then you miss the field goal. That illustration only works if you understand American football. Uh, whatever was written was written for our instruction that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. 
In this manner, we should learn to think and judge more properly about marriage than the flesh and the world are accustomed to. Remember, and we've been exploring this through a number of different ways, that uh, that uh, that we have to read the scripture through we we have to read the world through uh, not through um, our own the eyes of the flesh, but rather through the scripture itself. So how do we think about marriage? Sorry, I didn't say that well. I'm doing too many things at once. How do we think of marriage? We don't think of marriage through the eyes of the flesh. We think of marriage through the eyes of the scripture. And with this in mind, we should exhort the youth to suffer and bear with the equanimity whenever evil, whatever, whenever evils occur. They should accustom themselves to pray to prayer and say, Lord God, I am thy creature created a man by thee and ordained to this kind of life in which I am now constantly entangled in many evils and difficulties. But grant that I may truly acknowledge that I am thy creature and that thou art my father and creator and grant that I may await help and protection from thee. Now, now this chair keeps shrinking there's all there's all sorts of things going on around here this is this is much more profound this particular prayer and section than um it might appear on first glance uh oh so remember that luther's talking to seminarians and that's why he's so male-centric he's not preaching if he was preaching you would find him talking about men and women husbands and wives but remember, he's lecturing at the seminary, so it's a bunch of guys there, and he's he's going directly at them, and especially these guys who are going to seminary, who might have thought that going to seminary might mean they have to take a vow of chastity. Now they're in the Reformation Seminary in Wittenberg. I mean, this is later, so probably not. The, the vow of chastity is thirty years gone, but they're uh, th that they're there, and they're this is the kind of life that they're going to live, and and he's admonishing them not only to become pastors, but also to be good and faithful husbands. And the key thing that he's teaching them to pray and to see, the, the key thing that he's teaching them to confess is creation. I am thy creature. Uh, let me highlight it this way. I am thy creature created. Uh, there, thy creature. Thou art my father and creator. So that Luther is keying in on the first article. I believe in God, the Father Almighty maker, creator of heaven and earth. This means that I have to identify my, myself. I have to recognize, first of all, that I am created by God. Now, this, this has profound, profound implications for a number of the, of the particular issues that we are wrestling with today. Especially, for example, think of transgenderism and the whole ideology of transgenderism, which refuses to understand itself as a creature or even as a creation. But rather, it understands 
the, the, the ideology of, of transgenderism invites us to confess that we are not created by God, but rather that we are created by ourselves. That we have a way of determining who we are and what we are. So that, so that I am set at war against the matter by acknowledging myself as my own autonomous creator. Do, do you see what I'm? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you guys? You guys, let me know if you're picking up what I'm putting down here. So that this confession, "I am Thy creature," which is just what we say when we confess the first article of the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In other words, he is my maker. I am created by him. That, that, that confession of God as creator and me as creation is, uh, I, it's part of my own identity. And it's a, and it's a fight against this Gnostic idea that there's a distinction between me and, and my stuff. Remember Gnosticism, uh, which has casually this, this break between the spirit and, the, and, and matter and stuff. And it says that the stuff, the lower things, the material, that this is evil and corrupt, that this is um, that this is bad and wicked, and that the holiness belongs up here with the spirit. And th this not only does it make this dualistic distinction, but it also sets them up against each other. So that the spirit is now busy overcoming the flesh. Or I'll just say it like this, the soul is busy overcoming the body. And so if you just take Gnosticism and you just apply it to gender, male and female, and you, you say, well, where would my maleness or my femaleness be? Well, it belongs here with my spirit. That's the thing that matters. That's who I truly am. Well, what if my stuff doesn't match my spirit? You know, what if my stuff says that I'm a dude? And my mind says, my spirit says that I'm a lady. Well, what's right? Gnosticism would say, not only is the spirit right, but that the stuff has to be brought in line with the spirit, coerced, warred against, cut off, or whatever. So, so that not only does, does Gnosticism set up this dualistic thing, it also sets up a fight between the two. Now, when, when, this, when we pray this, Lord God, I am thy creature, we are praying from here. <laughs> See? This is, this is the me. I mean, I am soul and body, but those are, never, those are not set against each other or never apart from one another. I, 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 I am... I, there is no distinction between me and my stuff, between me and my matter, because this is also created by God. Now, I confess that it's fallen. My body and soul are both fallen, 
and both sinful and both in need of the Lord's redemption. So that, you know, we have this, um, we have this soul body distinction. Uh, you know, we say that we're, that we are soul and body. We, we don't separate the two, but we distinguish the, the two. We, we say that there's, we are soul and body, but that soul and body are both sold into sin and the, and the flesh spirit distinction cuts through the two so that the spirit is the word of God active in my own heart and so forth. And that the flesh is the, is the world. Uh, and, and, th and this is, I, I think this is, this is key that the flesh is all of this is all of the sinful part of me, including my sinful soul. So that so that the Gnostics would say that the let, let's just put the let's put the Gnostics in green here. The Gnostics would say that the soul body distinction is the spirit flesh distinction, and we say no, 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 no. That's totally wrong. The spirit flesh distinction cuts through the two, so that I can have a fleshly soul, and I can have a spiritual body. What? I mean, that's what Paul talks about, the spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, which is an amazing thing. But what's a spiritual body? That's a baptized body. That's an that's a eating the body of Jesus body. That's a going to church, hearing the word body. That's a spiritual body. And what's a fleshly soul? That's idolatry or unbelief or whatever. So that, so that this distinction of spirit and flesh is not the same as body and soul. That's the Gnostic mood. And if I have, if I make that distinction between spirit and stuff, spirit and body like that, now I'm at war against it. The body lies. The spirit is somehow true. And, and so many bad fruits come from that. So, so when, so when Luther, when Luther takes us back to the gift of creation, something really Something really profound is happening here. I am thy creature. There, there was, it reminds me of, there's a text in, uh, how did, in 1 Peter, um, where it talks about how Jesus commended himself to uh, the heavenly father. Um, where was no as to the creator sorry um what the fuck is it? it doesn't creator yeah 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 here um oh, is that it uh, yeah here, here here this is i think this is the text that i'm thinking of let those who suffer so this is first peter 4 verse 19 that those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So it's not, it's, you know, we normally would say, entrust their souls to a faithful redeemer or to a faithful savior while doing good. And that's all true. But there's something especially here about how there's comfort in the fact that we are created, that God has made us, that we belong to him. Okay. 
Uh, let me let me check the conversation here and see because I think you guys are. Um, let's see. God, you are so transient. Thank you. Eric. Uh, body, mind, soul. Did Gnosticism put the mind with the spirit? The Gnostics do have a complicated map of the inner life, which is maybe more complicated than we would want to make it. We understand the uh, we. So our basic understanding. Remember this. This is. I, I think this is. I found this to be very helpful. Our basic understanding is that we have the body, which is the outer life and the soul, which is the inner life. And the picture that we have is the tabernacle, the outer court and the inner court. And then that soul is divided into the holy place and the holy of holies. So if we want to talk about it, we can put the soul here and the spirit here. Um, and so this inner life consists of uh, mind. So our reason, uh, oh, come on. Yeah. If you guys want to know what is frustrating, I'll tell you that whatever software update they did to my little drawing thing that makes it where I can't write, that is frustrating. We have our mind here. We have our will. This is our determination. Um, we also have our emotions. Um, that, so are our feelings. Those, are, those belong here. We also have our memory and our conscience. Those are all the sort of different compartments of that inner life. I don't think that answered the question, but uh, let's see. There's a great lecture on the revolution of self by Carl Truman on issues, etc. last week, suggested the end game for transgenderism is transhumanism, cyborg stuff. Well, I don't know. I didn't hear the lecture. I did hear uh, Carl Truman here in person a couple of weeks ago. It's great. And I got this book. You know, he wrote um, that big book. This is the little book, A Strange New World, which I got to read this week. And he, you know, he starts and he says, oh, is this how he starts this book or the other one? He says, you know, if you said I'm a man trapped in a woman's body 10 years ago and also any time before 10 years ago, people laugh. But what happened to where that makes sense anymore? And he kind of tracks that down. It's kind of nice. What what has to happen to where this is not sort of a mess? But the idea that the end game is transhumanism, I think that's true. Uh, in in the big picture, there's this integration, there's this monistic move which wants to meld everything together. But the the thing that has to happen first is the move to androgyny, and and we've talked about this before that. So, so the Gnostics, remember this thing too. This is good for me to be thinking about this stuff because I got a lecture on it in a couple of weeks at this conference. Remember that the Gnostics um, thought that when God was, when, when humanity was created, you had this sort of morph person. You had like Adam and eve and they were like melded together i don't know how that and that that was how humanity was an adam and eve monism and when they were split in two and adam became man and eve became woman that splitting was for them the fall think about that 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 like that's when things broke 
is when there were men and women. Now, we confess from the scriptures that God looks at Adam and Eve and says, it's good. It's very good. And the two created by God, he made them male and female, and the two become one in marriage. But the the Gnostic idea is that the two were one. Essentially, they were they were neither male nor female. They were androgynous. And so you get all of this, this androgyny as the uh as the pagan ideal. And so you even get all this practice in the ancient world of the eunuch. Remember, Isaiah talks about the eunuch, Isaiah 56, is it? Where he talks about how the eunuch he'll 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 rescue the eunuch. But this this is all of the, the the pagan idea is that if you are a man or woman, you you are not you are fallen. And 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 this was it's just it's not even there in the even just in the transsexual stuff. It's even there in the monasticism of the Middle Ages. Is you have to you have to you have to pull yourself out of the institution of husband or wife in order to be holy. That's this same instinct. Anyway, back to Luther. What are we talking about? You guys are distracted. Oh, I was going to look at the chat. That's what I was going to Let's see. Um, we are created. Would this doctrine impact church polity? I'm thinking the necessity to establish a God-fearing male leadership in the local church. Yes, 100%. Uh, this has to do with why uh, the Lord appoints men as pastors. I can stop. Okay. Um, because it's just like it's impossible for a woman to be a husband or also impossible for a man to be a wife, so also it's impossible for a woman to be a pastor. It's just God has not instituted that way. Why? I don't know, but that's just how it goes. That's how, that's how God has created us. Jeanette says, hmm. Psalm 82, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. I, you know, I, I think that actually has a really nice application here. <clears throat> when we when we take on the role of God, we can only kill. So if the, if, if I, just to imagine this, <clears throat> uh, God has created me as a man. If I was to say, no, I'm God and I'm going to make myself into a woman, I would bring only death. So, so, First of all, I could the the life that a woman is able to bring forth is connected to the womb, and I cannot get a womb. And furthermore, the life that the Lord has put in a man, specifically here talking about marriage and biological life, is in the seed, and I then cut off the seed. So you you just bring death. You see how carefully I'm trying to talk. But you the, the point is that if I try to create life, the the exact opposite happens. It's there's the same problem that whenever we try to coerce creation into our service, we end up serving it. That 
Michelle says, I was reading Jonathan Edwards. He differentiated between a natural sense and a spiritual sense that apprehended God in a way to explain religious experiences. Is this something like the inner and outer life? Hmm. I want, yes, barely. So there is a sense in which our spirit receives the things of the spirit of God. And the things of God are confirmed in our spirit. But the big difference is, well, let, let me go back to this picture. Where do I have it here? Oh, yeah. So if we picture, let me just draw this a little bit better. If we picture, remember how it was um, in Israel, if you had the outer court, which was this kind of long gate uh, tarp that they made. And then in the middle of that, you had the tabernacle that went up like this. And then, you know, there's the roof here. You can imagine the tabernacle. And then they had the like the bronze altar out front. So let's pull this right here. You had the bronze, but you had the altar and you had the, the bronze laver and everything. Here's the fire and the sacrifice. And in here, you can imagine, um, oops. Uh, in here, you can imagine that there was the Holy of Holies. That's kind of right in there like this. Okay. So, so here we have our soul. And here we have our spirit. And here is where God comes to us. But here's the difference between us and John, Jonathan Edwards, who is a Calvinist. The Calvinists think that the, that the Lord's word gets to us this way. Like the Lord comes straight into the soul, into the spirit. Whereas we understand that the Lord goes through the gate. He comes in this way. Uh, be, because he comes in through the ear. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the word of God, I can recognize and know that it's true even as it now reaches the spirit and is confirmed there. The, the problem with the Calvinist is they can never trust the word of God, the external preached word of God. They only can trust the internal word of God because of their doctrine of limited atonement. Okay. Um, Michelle asked, does any change to the body pertain to this? Do, do tattoos do the same? Isn't it your mind changing into your body? I think I have a theory that tattoos are an indication of Gnosticism. That as Gnosticism becomes more of the cultural norm, tattoos also become more of the cultural norm. I don't think that means that every person who has a tattoo is a Gnostic. Or even that every person who is transgender or homosexual or whatever is also a Gnostic. But it's just part of the it's just part of the culture, you know? Like if you would have lived during the Industrial Revolution in England, like everyone would have had soot on their face, even the chim even if you're not a chimney sweep, you know, it's just in the air. So the stuff is just in the air. And so I think this idea of I need to reshape my body or my body is like a canvas that I can work on, that kind of thing. That's uh I think that is Gnostic. All right. What are we doing, guys? We've only covered like one paragraph. Okay. 
I am thy creature. Oh, yeah. I told you that there was more to this little prayer than met the eye. That's, I think, what's going on there. All right, let's keep going because otherwise, I mean, we're not in a hurry, but we should make some progress down the road. So let's go. Let's see. Um, I acknowledge that I am thy creature and that thou art my father and creator and grant that I may await help and protection from thee. This is going to be, by the way, one of the the ways that Christianity now stands apart from the world is we confess God as our creator. Such a prayer is necessary for all married people because we all experience the cross and the troubles that have been imposed on us. And would that one day celibacy may be removed from the establishments of the priests and the bishops and that they may be permitted or commanded to marry just as the ministers of our church live piously and honorably in matrimony. The question of the marriage of priests, you know, is a big question in the Reformation. It should be a big question now. I mean, how much trouble do, does the old Roman church have because they continue to require a celibate priesthood? Eesh. Then they would not gaze with longing at bishoprics and can canonries. Uh, in other words, because they can't get married, they can only look at all these glorious things in the church this wish of ours is futile they are beasts of the field and the dregs of the earth you know luther how do you really feel this had to be said about marriage at the beginning of this chapter because moses narrates how isaac summoned his son jacob and spoke with him about setting up a household and taking a wife remember he's 77 years old but he's got to get with it because he's in his seed is the messiah now and the marriage began with God's strength, ordinance, and call. This is in key. Marriage begins not on our own strength, but on the Lord's strength. I, this is when I, whenever I'm doing a marriage wedding, whenever I'm doing a pre-marriage count, this is the main thing. Matthew 19:4, Jesus says, Whatever God joins together, let not man separate. So who's doing the work in marriage, making the two into one? Answer, the Lord is doing. That's key. It's God's command. God's ordinance, God's strength, God's call. And, and, and we who are married need to know, need to have this confidence that this marriage of ours is from the Lord. What kind of miseries and annoyances he will have in marriage, we shall see in what follows. Talking about Jacob. For in the whole marriage, he has nothing of his own, nothing joyful and pleasant except offspring. Otherwise, he's exceedingly wretched. He lives in exile. He serves his father-in-law Laban, who treats him shamefully. But when God, through the mouth of the fathers, orders Jacob himself to take a wife, this is the ordinance of and the call to marriage. But the father adds another commandment, namely, that he should not choose a wife from the Canaanites, but should rather take a wife for himself from the daughters of Laban. Accordingly, this passage pertains to the teaching about the authority of parents and the consent they must give to the contracting of marriages. For we have rejected and condemned clandestine betrothals and marriages. Here we see Luther involving himself also in the kind of moral slash civil law that was existing in Germany. And the question of, can you have a clandestine marriage as a count? Luther said, no, that doesn't. For since the rebirth of the completely clear light of the gospel, we know that marriage is sacred and permissible and that it is a divine ordinance. In other words, people should not have to sneak around to get married. Parents should encourage their children to get married. 
Now, this there's something that's happening nowadays. Have you noticed this? You no doubt have noticed this, that, that parents are hesitant to encourage their kids to get married. Or at least they say that you got to have all these things done first. You have to, there's a big checklist of accomplishments that need to be checked off before you go and get married. Uh, uh, that is a worrisome trend. I mean, it's good to be responsible, but it's also good to be married. It is not disgraceful or dishonorable to become a spouse, as we thought in former times, because we had been led into error by the monks. No, it is honorable and sacred. We know, of course, that it has been horribly dishonored by lust. And for this reason, many considered it disgraceful to court a girl and to contract a marriage, as though it were something foul and unclean. That work of procreating children was not distinguished from other sins, from fornication and adultery. This is interesting here. Um, the the uh, Procreating children, the act of marriage. That's uh, just, if we can, if the kids are not, if we speak clearly here, the, the idea in the Middle Ages came into the church, basically, that sex was sin, no matter what. And there was no distinction from, for example, fornication and adultery and what husband and wife would do. But thanks to God's kindness, we have now learned and are sure that marriage is honorable. As is stated in Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So there's the marriage bed and there's the act of marriage and there is undefilement, not defilement. This is, this is you know, in the Middle Ages, the idea from Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me, Just it was just the, simply the idea that the, the very act of conception itself was sinful. You couldn't escape it. And here they say, no, no, that is not the case. That's not how we understand marriage. And we're also sure that it's God's will and institution that everyone should have his own spouse who has been lawfully joined to him. Therefore, there is no reason why we should shrink from this kind of life or why, deterred by shame and modesty, we should enter into it secretly and stealthily, contrary to the honor and the will of our parents. A girl should not be afraid to approach her parents and to ask them to give her an honorable, honorable young man in marriage. And parents have now been properly trained and are prepared to counsel their children. There are also godly pastors and magistrates who, by reason of their authority, are able to persuade parents not to show themselves hard and difficult. <laughs> this is parents hard and difficult this is that you, you imagine, just imagine the, the the daughter whose dad is there cleaning the gun <laughs> secret betrothal should be avoided the very sacred covenant of marriage should be made with honor to god and with respect to parents a clear example of this doctrine is set forth in this passage for the authority and the command of father isaac proceeds he orders his son not to marry a canaanite woman and jacob obeys this order with the greatest willingness Esau did the opposite. He took two Hittite wives against the will of his parents. We know all the trouble that that caused. By doing this, he grievously offended them with the result that both Isaac and Rebekah complained with sorrow that they were being wretchedly harassed by their daughters-in-law. This was a very grievous sin and crime. But in other respects, we already endure more than enough annoyances in marriage. Why, in addition to this, do we cause ourselves other more serious evils and God's wrath by sinning and despising our parents. So that we remember here, and here's maybe the application for us, is that 
marriage is a family deal. It's not just two. Why do we not prefer to contract marriages in the name of the Lord as Jacob did? Now, Luther is not suggesting the arranged marriage where the parents pick kids for their spouse, for their, for their kids, to pick wives for their or husbands for their kids. That we'll get to that in a little bit, but that the families are involved. Um, yet there is no lack of difficulties and troubles of every kind, but you will bear them more easily if you bring to marriage the knowledge which enables you to say, thus it has pleased my parents, my friends, my guardians, and God, so that I'm, so that I'm looking in marriage not simply to please myself. For you do not approach it in reliance on your own reason and wisdom. You did not disregard the authority and the consent of those whom God wanted you to respect. Therefore, you are sure of God's protection and goodwill. If you do not do this, an evil conscience, which will increase and aggravate all annoyances, is added to the common evils. In other words, if you just go and do whatever you want, then your conscience will be troubled, and this makes everything else worse. You know, a bad conscience, we've talked about this. A bad conscience makes the sun dim. It makes the food taste bitter. It makes, you know, you, it's hard to sleep at night. Everything is just ruined by a bad conscience. Some parents are now having to play, uh, having play dates for their children with other faithful families and hope for a Christian spouse. That's good. It's one of the reasons why we're doing this young adult conference, so they can all come and get married. Okay, uh, let's see. Let's skip a little bit. Isaac forbids his son to marry. I skipped a few paragraphs there. Isaac forget, forbids his son to marry a heathen woman and, ordered, uh, and orders him to go to his mother's brother Laban. Oops, I didn't share my screen. There we are. Uh, <clears throat> And to take a wife there. Although Isaac does not force him to marry a woman pleasing to his father, yet he wants him to choose an honorable woman who he himself will love and marry. The father's order must proceed, the son must obey. Nor should he be forced to marry a woman who he hates. Now, here's that. That's a, that's a key thing, too. So it's not as if the will of the children doesn't matter. That's one of the problems with Laban, as we will find out. Uh, the love of one who is betrothed should be free, and a father should not stand in the way. He should promote it and give help. So love should be free. Just like faith is free, so marital love is free. That's nice. This is the true and orderly way to contract marriage. It should not be overthrown, for the day's own trouble is sufficient. That is, the troubles of marriage, which you will have in sufficient abundance when you have entered this kind of life. It's good to have your family's support. As much as you can, therefore, you must avoid offending your parents and God. Rather, begin marriage with a good favor and the goodwill of God and your parents, so that you may be able to complete the course your whole life. If not without punishments and annoyances, at least without blame. And if not with unalloyed joy, at least with an innocent heart and a good conscience and God's good pleasure. This is a um, one of the reasons why it's good for that the children seek 
the permission of their parents before they uh, go to get married. It's also one of the reasons why the who gives this woman to be married to this man is part of the marriage right, although I don't do that anymore. I have a, I, there's a different right, there's a different rubric in the marriage, um, in the marriage right, which has both parents stand up, both sets of parents. So the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom. And the pastor addresses both parents and says, do you um, give your blessing to this marriage? Something like that. And they say, we do. And then they're both asked, do you promise to support this marriage by your prayers all their life? And the answer is, we do. So instead of, instead of the idea that mom and dad are giving the daughter to the man, it's better that the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom are giving them, they're both blessing this marriage. I think that's great. Uh, let's see. We got questions and we got uh, time. Let's see. Um, um, hmm. I, I'm going to answer some of these afterwards. Let's see. Matt says, free will. We have marriage passes. How, oh, Matt asks, I've seen you speak on the free will we have to marry a spouse, that there isn't one person that God has picked out for us and that we need to find them. And yet, as soon as the son of my parents was predestined for birth from creation, how do we understand the free will of picking a spouse with the understanding that a future child is already known and created by God? No idea. <laughs> There's, this is one of this is this is this is two steps beyond the veil that covers the mystery of God. So it's not even just on the veil. It's there's like three veils that are in the way of us understanding how this happens. You guys got the question. So Matt's asking, hey, we we have free will and we're interacting in the world and we say, oh, hey, would you like to get married? Sure. And you get married and you have a baby. And that all those free choices of all those millions of people resulted in that baby which is that perfect genetic mix of those two people. And that baby was known before the foundation of the world through the Lord. How does that whole thing work out? I don't know. I mean, it could be, there could be some relief in the, in the difference between the foreknowledge of God and the election of God. In other words, God knows everything that's going to happen. He determines the good things that are going to happen, but that probably doesn't get us any closer. Uh, Vera says, what if the bride and groom are Christians, but mom and dad are not? Um, it's a, this is a real, it's a good question. Uh, so we honor our parents. Christians honor their unbelieving parents in as far as they can without dishonoring God. And so what we're talking about here, like sh um, should children get married to a, should they, should a man marry a woman that his parents have forbidden him to marry? In general, no. If unbelieving parents are forbidding their, say, forbidding their son from marrying a woman because of wisdom, 
then they are to be obeyed in as much as possible. If they are commanding him, for example, not to marry a woman because she's a Christian, then they should be disobeyed. In other words, what they're commanding is against God. So when you have unbelieving parents, you're always trying to determine uh, how, how can I honor them? Uh, in what way? So I can't honor their godliness because they don't have godliness. I can't honor their godly wisdom because they don't have godly wisdom. I can honor their earthly wisdom in as much as possible and the fact that they're my parents. But I understand that that earthly limit w wisdom has severe limits. And so I want to follow God's wisdom too. And that's going to oftentimes mean contradicting my parents. Uh, we're just trying to do, we're trying to minimize that as much as possible. Um, boy, oh boy, look at all these questions. How about this? I think this is probably a good time to stop. We're at an hour anywho. So uh, let me say a prayer. I'll wind us down and then we can all jump on and, and talk some more casuistry uh, questions. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we give you thanks for your gift of marriage. We pray that you would grant us your spirit so that uh, those of us who have the office might live according to your will in it. That those who desire this office of husband or wife would be given it as a gift from you. Uh, that those who desire children would also receive this great gift from you and that you would give them joy uh, in this gift. We pray that uh, you would comfort us in our homes. Uh, you would especially be with the lonely. Uh, we, that you would provide us all relief from every distress and cross in the confidence that you love us and forgive our sins. Uh, help us to confess you as our creator and stand against the nonsense. Uh, that is uh, confessed in the world today. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless and keep you.